0: Almighty God, it is with a grateful heart that we come before you to listen to your word, so that when your word is sown by your grace, we may also see fruit being born 30, 60, 100 times. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let us turn to John chapter 15, verse 12 to 17. John chapter 15, verse 12 to 17. When you have found it, please rise for the reading of God's holy word. Hear now the word of the Lord. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing, As was mentioned earlier in the beginning of our service, this is the final Sunday of Advent, the fourth Sunday of Advent, but it is Christmas Sunday. It is the day that we celebrate Christmas. Not only do we Christians celebrate Christmas on the 25th of December, we celebrate it on Christmas Sunday, the Sunday before the 25th. So Merry Christmas to everybody and I hope that you will have a wonderful, wonderful Christmas season as we enter into 2024. And again, the final theme of the Advent Sunday in this calendar is love. And I would think that for most, I would imagine that love is something that you know and don't know at the same time. You know it, But you want to know more of it. You need it, but you have to give it. But as Christians, we should recognize if you don't have it, you don't have anything at all. In 1 Corinthians 13, we are shown that even if we have everything, but not love, we have nothing. We are nothing. And among the great three, and these are the great three in verse 13 in 1 Corinthians 13, faith, hope, and love. And it says faith, hope, and love abide. That means faith, hope, and love continue on. It continues on. The greatest of these is love. Love is the greatest force, the greatest characteristic, the greatest thing. And at the same time, it is no thing at all. The Bible even tells us in 1 John chapter 4, verse 8, that anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. So then if you want to know love, you must know God. I'm sure that maybe you can hear some criticisms in the back of your head that you may hear in response to that statement. If you want to know love, you must know God. That's absurd. Absurd. I'm sure there are people that don't know God and love plenty. They love their children. They love their spouses. They love their loved ones. Am I right? And at the same time, if we are being honest with ourselves and we do think that we truly love someone, I mean, truly and deeply love someone, like I love my kid, then what I want to do is I want to love them properly. Just because you think you love someone doesn't mean you actually love them unless you love them properly. People will murder someone saying that it was because they loved them, but no one would acknowledge that as love. People would say things like, love makes you do crazy things. But I think what that really means is that when you love somebody, you do things out of the ordinary for that person. And that's why we must establish that love requires a standard. Love requires a standard. You can't go around murdering people saying that you love them. Because if you truly, deeply love somebody, you need to, you want to love them proper. And wouldn't you want to really do that? You really love your child. You love the children that you baptized. Don't you want to love them proper? And the standard of love proper is God. Oswald Chambers will go on to say that God and love are synonymous. Love is not an attribute of God. It is God. Whatever God is, love is. And that's exactly what we see that Jesus reveals to his disciples in this morning's passage. He says in verse 12, this is my commandment. That you love one another as I have loved you. We are to love one another as Jesus loved us. How has Jesus loved us? Many of you have grown up in the church. Let me ask you to think about that. How has Jesus Christ loved you? And you may immediately think this Well, he died for us, he defeated sin. He conquered death. He rose again from the grave and now is seated at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty. That's how he loved us. And that's absolutely true. But in this context, the disciples didn't know that yet. He didn't die for the disciples yet. When he's giving this statement, this commandment to the disciples, they didn't know that yet. While that is all true, this is the love in which he loved us. But when he is giving this command. He has not done this yet. And so, before we move on to exegete 12 and on, I think we need to get some context. What is this love in which he loved them with and now is commanding the disciples to love one another? He is commanding his disciples to love one another in that love. What is love? And so in verse 9, he tells his disciples... As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. The paradigm for love when we are to love one another is the love between the Father and the Son. Now, once you recognize this, this should make anyone take a step back and say, whoa, whoa. And you start to think and even imagine, how did the Father Love the son. You see, the father loved the son with a complete love. There is nothing incomplete about the love the father has for his son. The word in the Greek is used for love is agape. It's in the aorist tense. That means it is translated now in the perfect uh, present perfect tense has love instead of the simple past tense, but. The aorist tense in the Greek is to show you simply that something has happened with no indication of time frame, simple action. It's a default tense to indicate something happened in the past. But the context that I'm trying to give you is that this form of agape isn't simply a past tense or a past event that's being indicated here, it's a complete event. I have loved you. Not meaning that I don't love you anymore, but I have loved you in the complete sense. There is no more love to add to the love that the Father has to the Son. And there is no more love that you can take away that the Father has for the Son because it is a complete love. There's nothing missing in this love. That's the love that the Father has loved the Son with. It's an incredible kind of love if you think about it. And that's the love that Jesus Christ is commanding his disciples to love one another with. That is mind boggling. Don't you think so? That's mind boggling. That's why I say it's something that should at least make you pause even for a little bit. In the very least, thinking about the Father's eternal love for His Son and how He has loved us with that love, but He's commanding us now to love one another in that love. And as if that wasn't enough to blow our minds, He continues on And commands them to abide, continue on in his love. And the way we do that, uh, the way we continue on in the love of God and the love of Christ is that we keep his commandments. There's something that we must not miss. Is that the obedience is the sign that shows us that we are in Christ's love. Obedience. Obedience is the sign that we are continuing on in Christ's love. And Jesus further elaborates this in verse 11. He is telling us to do these things so that his joy may be in us and that our joy may be complete or full. Now, we see that obedience, obeying Jesus' commands, exhibits the reality of love in the disciples' life, and that is a life of complete joy and happiness. We finally get to see this and we get to verse 12 that Jesus commands his disciples to love one another with that same kind of love. Because we have heard it, have we not? Love one another. Love one another. Sure, okay, I can do that, Jesus. But that's not the qualifier. The qualification of the kind of love isn't something that you define love to be. Jesus does not say love one another to the best of your ability or love one another in the way you think is good. Jesus first says that if you are in God's love, you will obey my commands. And then his command is to love one another as I have loved you. And again, how has Jesus loved his disciples? The way the Father has loved the Son. A complete love. To say the very least, it is an immeasurably high standard. Not only that, it is an unbreakable love. Nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Nothing can separate us. But that is the standard of love. And before I move on from this point, I would like to make a note of how far we have descended from this standard of love. Look at our state of marriage, or should I say state of divorce. Look at our state of promiscuity. Another definition of promiscuity is confusion. We are confused because we do not know what the standard of love is. We don't know what order is. We don't know why marriage was instituted and more most importantly we don't know how to love one another. We see others as tools for our gratification. Case in point, maybe you have friends. But what happens when you think about your friends? When you think about your friends, when friends come into your mind, is it because I feel lonely. I think I need some friends. I need to call my friend. I feel lonely. Rather than, I must give and share this love proper. Where are my friends? So that I can give it. Those are two different scenarios. Completely different origins. But where does your friendships start? You see, Jesus didn't come to us because he needed our love. Jesus came to us to give us his love. And it's with this heart he says that we are to love one another as I have loved you. And now that we've covered that, I'd like to go on more specific, specifically to what kind of love we are to give one another. In 1 John 3.16, it says, By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. This is how we know what love is. We look at Jesus, who laid his life down for us, then we love one another. And it's just to do exactly that. We lay down our lives for the fellow believers here. This is how the church became so attractive to those outside of the church as well. This is why priests converted to the faith in Acts 6. They saw that the love that the disciples had for one another, that the Christians had for one another, the church held was something, nothing short of a miracle. It was the work of God. And that's why Jesus continues to add context to his command, saying that in verse 13, greater love has no one than this, that someone laid down his life for his friends. Now, there are multiple levels to this statement. And as one level, we can see that this is the standard that we are to love one another here in this church. If this church has truly the one and only king, Jesus Christ, if we say our church has Jesus Christ as king, and we are abiding in his love, then we need to love one another, meaning we need to lay down our lives for one another. That's the standard. That's the command. It's not just some emotional appeal that Jesus is saying. This is a love that we must do for one another because this is God's command. And if you are abiding in his love, he's saying you will obey this command. But on another level, he says this and immediately calls them friends, referring to his death for his friends. The completeness of his love was expressed when he died on the cross for those whom he called his friends. And the Apostle John got it. He wrote that. The way we know love is the way we lay our lives down for one another. Notice, that there is no qualifier attached to it, such as, well, what if they don't love you back? What if they don't reciprocate the love that you give them? What if you sacrifice and lay down your life for them and they don't do the same? There is no qualifier like that. We don't love one another for the praise of men. We don't love one another so that we get reciprocated fairly and equally We love one another because of the overflow of God's love for us. And that's the question, isn't it? How much has God loved you? How much has God loved you? That's how you love the brethren, the members of his church. And to make it as clear as possible, he states it again, you are my friends if you do what I command you. That means the negative should be clear. If you do not love one another as Jesus loved you, then you are not a friend of God. I hear this from time to time. And something like, this person, though, is hard to love. Hard to love, right? It does make me smile because I know exactly what they mean. It would be nice if people made it easy for you to love them, wouldn't it? But once again... Once again, when we look at Jesus's life and love for his disciples and how many times they frustrated him, you know, to the point, maybe many times, but to the point he would call them dull. In Matthew, Peter asks Jesus to explain one more time this parable. And Jesus goes, are you so dull that you don't get this? They frustrated Jesus but even to the point of not just only frustration, but betrayal. Did Jesus love Judas Iscariot any less? He knew that he would betray him, but didn't he still eat with him? Didn't he witness every miracle, partake in the grandness of his ministry, even though Jesus knew that he would go on to betray him? He didn't make Judas go and sit in the corner, In fact, he let Judas betray him, but it still couldn't thwart God's plan. In fact, it was used for his plan. And that's what should encourage us. Jesus, in his complete obedience to God, shows us that nothing can thwart God's plan, even when that love bestowed is used against us it should give us great assurance that when we love obedience in when we love one another in obedience to Christ God's will is done because it isn't the obedience to Christ that makes us friends but it is the obedience to Christ that characterizes his friends i'm going to continue to extrapolate on this so please be patient and I hope that you are following along. He then says something quite spectacular. He says in verse 15, "No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends, for all that I have heard from the, my Father I have made known to you." Now, <clears throat> people have unfortunately mistaken this to mean that we are his buddies. We are his chums. At that time, this would have been an absolutely foreign and strange concept to those that were listening to Jesus at the time, that we would be chums with Jesus. It's a weird thing now where we have lost a lot of our formality in the culture today. We're all equal or something like that. We all call each other by our first names. I get it. We all think that we're chums or friends, but I think if we look back, this is a modern concept in the Western world. And I think some of those modern concepts are not necessarily a good one. And I want to give you an example. And again, I ask for your patience, because this is the first time I think I'm going to give an example that is a Korean example. I've made it a point to, in my 10-year plus years of preaching, never to make a Korean example. This is my first, so please bear with me. My wife, quite affectionately calls me fake Korean, fake Korean, rightfully so. I am an American through and through, okay? But as an outsider, I get to notice things that maybe a native Korean like my wife can take for granted. And there are a number of people here of Korean descent, quite a number, I think. But I don't think that necessarily qualifies you as Korean, in my humble opinion, okay? Now I want to share how I know if you are truly a Korean or not. I have a test that I do, and people have always ask me, Pastor Eugene, what's your test? The test has multiple multiple questions. I can't just give you one. There's many many questions that I could give, but I just want to give you one, and I want to share one of those secret tests that I have to see if you're actually if you actually have and know or breathe Korean culture in your life, or if you're like me, and you're a fake Korean, right? And I told my wife the other day that I think in our church, by the standard that I have, there's maybe a half a dozen Koreans here, okay? Again, you are more than welcome to disagree with me on this point, but I wanted to use this example to prove a point, okay? And the question that I have is, what is friend in Korean? What is friend in Korean? There is a word that you would use almost synonymously with friend in Korean. It's chingu, right? But does chingu mean friend? Yes and no. Yes and no. So, what's the test? I see if you use the word correctly. Here's the example Jubin and I are friends. Jubin and I are friends. And let's take the elder-pastor relationship out of this for now, just simply socially. Jubin and I are friends. But are we chingu's? Some of you laugh, but no, we're not. We are not. There's no way in Korean culture we would be chingu's. We could say up to the point that we treat each other like chingu's. That means we're really close. We treat each other like we're chingu's. But it doesn't mean that we are. We would introduce our relationship to someone who doesn't know Jubin and myself. We would introduce to someone our relationship by stating who is older and who is younger. And there are names for that as well. And friends in Korean doesn't even mean that you're necessarily close with each other friend in Korean basically means you're the same age. That's the test. How do you treat people that are older and younger than you if you're both Korean? And if two real Korean people get together, they first establish exactly that. They establish who's older, who's younger, if you are chingus or not. And that's only in the social setting. Don't get me started on work settings, church settings, they're all different. There are nuances that I obviously won't go into here, and I'm sure that there are some that I didn't even catch. But I'm telling you, I know that much, which I realize that many people don't. You might speak the language, but I don't think that makes you someone that is very in or knows Korean culture. Now, I gave you this kind of silly example. It's a silly example. You could, after the service... Go be my guest, call everybody chingus. that's, That's up to you. But I think it's a mistake to think that when Jesus calls us friends, that we are now buddies, that we are chums. In fact, I will go as far as this: to say that it would be downright blasphemous to call your God a buddy. He is God. He is king. And I think that any culture can get this. If a king, however, calls you his friend, that doesn't mean he's your chum. But if the king calls you his friend, that is something remarkable that we cannot miss. So I'm glad that Jesus qualifies that friend here He says that. This is how he defines friend. He says that he no longer calls us servants. And the Greek word is doulos, which means slaves, which we really are. We are slaves of Christ, but he doesn't call us that. Why? Because he shares with his friends all that he has heard from the Father. That means we as friends of God know God's heart, we are invited to his presence. When the king calls you his friend, we are seated at the table with God. We are not to think that we are equal with God. Just because you sit at table with God, you're not equal with God. But we do get the sense of incredible privilege that we get to sit at table with not only the king, but the king of kings. There is a sense of incredible privilege that we are being shown here in Jesus Christ. The fact that he calls us his friends should humble us because we didn't do anything, anything to deserve to sit at the table with God. And yet by sheer grace, we can sit with the king. And he says that outright in the next verse, doesn't he? Verse 16, he says, You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. We didn't choose him. He chose us. In fact, there was nothing we could have done to choose him. To think that is a break from reality. If you truly know the sin that you've always held dear more than God. Let's be absolutely honest with ourselves. We love the sin more than we love God. To think that even as we held that sin dear, that we could choose God is a break from reality. We were enemies of God in our sin. And yet God in his great love chose us before the foundations of the world were even laid. In Ephesians chapter 1, Paul goes on this really long, run-on sentence because he just can't help himself because he's thinking about the love that God has for us. In Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3, he says this. And I'm going to finish the sentence, which is actually eight verses. But he says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, to him is what characterizes our fellowship with him it shows us that we are abiding in his love that means our joy is full when we obey him now i didn't say it would be easy but the bible does say it will be joyful and you see that truth go through any discipline if we're being honest the theme that we've been going over in our studies in the past weeks and podcasts Physical discipline isn't easy. It isn't easy to rep out until failure, true failure. But there is a joy for those that are true to the discipline. And I would think that for the disciple of Christ, the joy of obeying Christ is incomparable to any other discipline in the world. And when we obey Christ, we bear fruit and that fruit abides. It continues on just as we abide in his love. This is absolutely the case when we look back to see how the church has grown here. Look at the church gathered and scattered. Some of you have started with me from the beginning. Look at how the Lord has blessed us. It's absolutely the case. But go beyond the church gathered and scattered. Go beyond even this generation. Go back thousands of years. And we see that we are the product of thousands of years of love bearing fruit and continuing on. And Jesus even says that whatever we ask in the name of the Father so that we could accomplish this, He will give it to us. And he ends this section again with another reminder. When Jesus reminds you over and over again, you know that this is important. He says in verse 17, These things I command you so that you will love one another. This is Christmas Sunday. Let us reflect on the love of Christ. How has he loved us? How has he loved us? He came to us as a baby. How did he live? He lived in perfect obedience to God. How did he die? In his death, he gave us life. And now he calls us friend. And that love is what appoints us to go now and share that love with one another. It is a witness to the world of God's love for us. So when we love one another, let us do this without hesitation, equivocation, vacillation. Let us love one another as Jesus loved us wholeheartedly in obedience to Christ our King. For in this we see our purpose, and we see our joy. How great is it that Christ loved you, and how joyful is it that he now appoints us to share that love with one another. Praise be to God for giving us this great commandment. Praise be to God for answering our prayers when we ask him, help us to love one another, lay down our lives for one another, Give ourselves to each other just as you have given yourself to me that my life may bring glory to our King. Praise be to God and Merry Christmas, everybody. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the word and we thank you for your son, And we thank you for the commandment that you give us to love one another as you have loved us. As we remember your love this Sunday, help us now to live it out by loving one another as you have loved us. Let's take this time to pray and reflect on the word that has been given to us, asking the Lord to do exactly that, that we may live lives of obedience to our King, Loving one another, laying down our lives for one another, and pleasing the Lord in our lives that we give to Him. Let's pray.